If you brought a Bible this morning, please open it to the end of Romans 8. We'll be reading verses 31 through 39 of that chapter this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, but you'd like to read along with us, you are more than welcome to use one of the pew Bibles. You can find those in the seat back in front of you. I recently introduced my kids to the old Popeye the Sailor cartoons from the 1930s. Can you believe that's almost 100 years ago? They somehow had never seen or even heard of Popeye, so I felt it was my duty to rectify that oversight. I grew up watching Popeye, and the appeal for me, as for most kids, was the inevitability of that moment when Popeye would eat his spinach, because you knew he was about to lay a mad hurtin' down on Bluto. What I never really paid much attention to as a kid, though, was, was what Popeye and Bluto were fighting over. I mean, I understood they both wanted the love of olive oil, but that was mushy girl stuff. I was only there for the fighting. They could have been duking it out over a seashell one of them found on the beach or the, the last banana in the fruit bowl, and it wouldn't have mattered to me. I was only in it for the over-the-top cartoon violence. But as I've recently watched episodes with my own kids, it's become obvious to me how incredibly fickle olive oil's love is. In most episodes, as I've said, Popeye and Bluto uh, slug it out over Olive. Sometimes it's because Bluto has attempted to kidnap Olive and Popeye has to rescue her. That's fair. But in a lot of episodes, Olive has simply decided she likes Bluto better. Bluto is better at playing a sport or ballet dancing or uh, chopping down trees or whatever it is. And Olive just up and leaves Popeye's side to go and moon over Bluto. Popeye then has to win back her affection by eating his spinach and besting Bluto at whatever the activity is while also beating up Bluto. Popeye may finish the episode with olive oil at his side, but you know by the next episode, she's going to be back to swooning over Bluto instead. Popeye can never rest secure in olive oil's love because she's constantly leaving him for his adversary. If these were real people instead of cartoon characters, Popeye would be a shell of a man, racked with crippling insecurities and obsessively trying to find ways to keep olive oil loving him. Unfortunately, that's how many of us feel when it comes to God's love, often because of experiences we've had with love in our past. We've been hurt, and so we tend to see our relationship with God through the lens of that hurt. Those who grew up with distant fathers might feel enormous pressure to live in such a way as to earn God's continuing love. Those who've been betrayed or abandoned by a significant other might feel like they have to constantly walk on eggshells to keep their partner loving them, or to keep, I'm sorry, to keep God loving them. Those with perpetually disapproving parents may worry that God has very little affection for them, or none at all, simply because of who they are. We know in our heads that we've been saved by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. But we find ourselves thinking that maybe despite saving us, God just doesn't like us very much. Like a lifeguard who saves you from drowning, but then has nothing but disdain for you because you made him get out of his chair. Maybe God resents the fact that he had to save us at all. Maybe we're all just one mistake away from God abandoning us altogether. If you've ever felt this way, if you've ever been racked by these fears and insecurities, the end of Romans will be an enormously comforting passage for you. End of Romans 8. 
Paul began his letter to the Romans by arguing that there is a universal need for a savior for both the Jews and the Gentiles. He has explained that God in his grace has provided a savior in Jesus Christ and that it's by faith in Christ that we are saved. He has further explained that we are not to abuse God's grace by continuing in sin since we are dead to sin. Likewise, we are dead to the law, which has no power to save anyone. Paul has so far explained in Romans 8 some of the benefits of our new life in Christ. He has stated in no uncertain terms that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He has explained that we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, that we are sons of God and co-heirs with Jesus, and that we have the hope of future glory. And now in our passage this morning, Paul is going to draw some final conclusions from what he's been saying up to this point and bring uh, this part of his letter to a close. Let's read together Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing we see in our text this morning is that accusations will not separate us from the love of God. Accusations will not separate us from the love of God. Paul uses a number of rhetorical questions in this passage to uh, get his readers to think through and internalize what he's saying. He could have, for instance, said in verse 31, if God is for us, no one is against us. The meaning would have been the same, but the intent the impact of it would have been lacking. By phrasing it as a question, his readers are left to consider it and come to the answer on our own, which really drives it home for us when we read the question and say to ourselves, no one. If God is for us, then no one is against us. It does something inside us. Our interaction with the text in this way internalizes it, makes it personal for us. And Paul uses rhetorical questions like this in each of the first five verses of our passage this morning. He wants us to really own these great truths, to chew on them, and to consider their implications for our lives. If God is for us, if the one true and living God Almighty, the maker and the sustainer of heaven and earth, awesome in power, perfect in majesty, is for us, who can possibly be against us? Who could ever be powerful enough to resist or defy the God who is in our corner? Paul is not saying here that no one will ever oppose us. The clear and consistent message of the New Testament is that followers of Christ 
will encounter opposition and persecution in this life. We will be hated. We will be slandered. We will be mocked. We will be pushed and pressured to compromise our beliefs. For many believers around the world, there will be physical harm and suffering and even bodily death for their faith in Christ. Persecution for the Christian is a given as far as the Bible is concerned. And this, of course, implies that there will be uh, persecutors who will oppress us. Paul's rhetorical question, then, is not meant to imply that we'll just sail through life with no opposition. Rather, he's emphasizing that the God who is for us is infinitely greater and more powerful than any who might seek our ruin. We have nothing to fear from anyone because God is on our side. It's a bit like a little kid getting pushed around in the playground and shouting, I'm going to tell my dad on you. In that child's mind, there is no one on earth stronger than his dad. And he knows that his dad is committed to protecting him from harm. So he just assumes that his dad is going to run down to the playground and, and beat up that bully, right? Now we as adults recognize that this is a, a tremendously unlikely expectation. If the dad decides to do anything about the situation at all, it's probably not going to go much further than a phone call to the school or to the bully's parents. That dad is constrained by the law from really unleashing his wrath on that bully. The God who is for us has no such constraints, though. He is altogether mighty, and he is perfectly just in unleashing his wrath. And he is for us. So who can be against us? Paul follows up that question with another one in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, the goal here is to get his readers to answer the question, to ponder it, and to come to the only possible answer on our own. God, by his grace, gave up his only begotten son for you and for me. There is no higher price he could have paid for our redemption, no more precious gift he could have given to redeem us than the Lord Jesus Christ who came to earth as a man and suffered and died on a cross to bear God's wrath. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for, this, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If our Heavenly Father was willing to graciously pay that steepest possible price for us, could there possibly be anything that he would withhold from us? Now let me clarify something. This is not meant to be a proof text for the prosperity gospel. This verse does not mean God gave me Jesus, so he's also going to give me a BMW and an enormous bank account and perfect health and anything else I might decide I want. God's not writing us a blank check to have the finest things this world can offer. Rather, verse 32 means that God will provide all that we need to grow in Christ-likeness and so finish the great race of faith in such a way as to win a crown. But we also shouldn't assume that there's no thought for our material needs here. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus commands his disciples not to worry about physical needs like food and clothing. And he assures them that their Heavenly Father knows they need those things. In verse 33 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things that's their material needs, will be added to you. 
So we can infer from Romans 8.32 that God will meet our physical as well as our spiritual needs. In verses 33 and 34, Paul continues his thought, and he uses the language of litigation to drive his point home, bringing a charge, justifying, condemning, interceding. These are all courtroom terms. Paul is describing a legal trial that he intends to serve as a metaphor, and his inclusion of condemning tells us that this metaphor is probably meant to uh, depict the final judgment. One day when Christ bodily returns to the earth, there will be a final judgment for every man and woman and child who has ever lived. Listen to how John describes it in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. He writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the judgment Paul is alluding to here in Romans 8 when he builds his courtroom scene. He asks, who shall bring any charge against the elect? And then he answers himself by pointing out that it is God who justifies. The God who is for us has given up his son for us in order to justify us or to declare, declare us righteous. There is no one who is able to condemn us because Jesus Christ sits at the Father's right hand and intercedes for us. There is no accusation that can possibly separate us from the love of God. There is no accuser who can convince God to blot our names from his book of life. Satan can't do it. Those who hate us can't do it. Even our own consciences can't do it. It's interesting that when unbelievers think about morality, they have this tendency to to set the bar a little bit lower than themselves. They think of all the people who commit the sorts of sins that they themselves don't engage in, and they make that the basis for their belief that when they die, they'll, they'll end up in some form of heaven. I don't cheat on my wife like my neighbor Bill. I don't drink and drive like Uncle Frank. I'm certainly better than Hitler, right? Hitler somehow always shows up in moral comparisons like this. The bar for being good enough for heaven for them is always just a little bit lower than them. I think Christians have a tendency to think just the opposite, whether consciously or unconsciously. We set that bar just a little higher than us because we're so completely aware of the sins that we commit. We profess to know that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, that we've been declared righteous by God, but then we get into the mindset that we have to continue earning that righteous status, and we invariably let ourselves down. If I really had faith in Christ, I wouldn't struggle with road rage. If I was a real Christian, I wouldn't lust or gossip about my neighbors. If our consciences are not seared by flagrant and habitual sin in our lives, 
it will prick us when we do sin. And Satan will use that, that prick of conscience to accuse us and to try to convince us that we're not really saved. And whether we're willing to admit it to ourselves or not, we do sometimes wonder and worry that maybe we really aren't saved. Either that we were never really converted at all, or that we've managed to sin ourselves right out of the promise of heaven. Satan can do that to us, but he can't do it to God. No amount of smooth talk or subtle manipulation by the devil is going to convince God to change his verdict regarding us. God has justified the elect, not on condition of our flawless obedience, but by the death and the resurrection of his only begotten Son. Nothing and no one can ever change that. And you might think, well, that's good and well for the elect, but how can I know if I'm one of the elect? I'm going to talk about election next week uh, when we look at Romans 9, but I do want to briefly answer this question this morning because it's a, it's a fair question. After all, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So self-examination is both good and scriptural. How can we be sure we're among the elect? Or, worded in another way, how can we be sure we're really saved? Each of us, each of us, came out of the womb spiritually dead, stillborn, completely and thoroughly without life. In the spiritual hospital, we're not in the emergency room, we're not in the intensive care unit, we're not on life support, clinging to life. We're in the morgue. We're on a slab in a drawer. We are dead. And as such, we cannot do anything, anything to affect our own salvation, any more than Lazarus could call himself out of the grave. The physically dead man is unable to put forth even the slightest effort to make himself alive. In the same way, in our natural state, we are unable to choose Jesus or have faith, choose to have faith. In order for us to have a saving faith in Jesus, God has to bring us spiritually to life or regenerate us. Only then are we spiritually alive to place our faith in Christ. Listen to how Paul explains this to believers in Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If you have any measure of actual faith in Jesus Christ, it is because God has graciously made you spiritually alive so that you are able to believe and be saved. Now I say actual faith in Christ because it is woefully common in our society for a person to say that they're a Christian with their words but to have absolutely no evidence in their lives to back up that claim. Verbal assent is not the same thing as faith. If our personal lives are identical to those of our unsaved neighbors, 
it doesn't really matter what we claim to believe. We are not Christians. This is why Paul instructs us to examine ourselves. Our lives should look different from the rest of the world. Jesus makes this clear in John 14, 21, when he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Jesus says again, just two verses later, in John 14, 23 and 24, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. If we love Jesus, we will strive to obey God's will revealed in Scripture. That's not to say we'll obey perfectly. We still live in a fallen world and fallen bodies. We still wrestle against the flesh and against Satan. We will still sin. We will still stumble. We will still lose battles with temptation until the day that we're called out of this world. But the trajectory of our lives will be toward more faithful obedience, born out of love and gratitude for Jesus Christ. So if you can honestly say, both with your words and with your deeds, that you love the Lord Jesus, then you are among the elect. You have been chosen and called by God's grace. If you have no interest in the word of God or spiritual things, if you have no desire to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, then regardless of what you might say, you have no, faith, no love for Christ and you are under God's wrath. If that's you this morning, I urge you to trust in Jesus and so be saved. Examine yourselves carefully and act accordingly. The second point we see in our text this morning is that adversity will not separate us from the love of God. Adversity will not separate us from the love of God. Paul goes on in our passage this morning in verses 35 through 37 to ask, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul continues to press his point here. If God is for us and no one can bring a charge against us or condemn us because God has justified us and Jesus intercedes for us, then who or what can separate us from this great love? Here in verse 35, Paul gives us a list of personal trials that um, a person may go through in this life. And he asks, are any of these great enough to cut us off from God's love? The obvious answer is, absolutely not. We get that. But we shouldn't just breeze through this list without really pausing to consider it. The list itself may look sort of familiar to you. If you've spent any time in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, this list may look familiar to you. False teachers had come into the church at Corinth and had been dragging Paul's name through the mud. So Paul defends himself in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-27 by listing out the hardships that he's endured for the gospel. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst often without food, in cold and exposure. Based on this passage, Paul isn't just listing out wild hypotheticals in Romans 8. He's personally experienced them. He's gone through tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger. The book of Acts tells us all about Paul's experience of most of these. He even eventually experienced the sword. Tradition tells us he was beheaded in Rome. Paul knew what he was talking about when he mentioned all these things. His battered body could attest to the sure fact that no personal trial or adversity could separate us from the love of God. But it would be just as fair to say that our personal experience of any or all of these does not mean that we are outside of God's love. Have you ever hit a really rough patch in your life and found yourself wondering if God has stopped loving you? Maybe you've lost your job and have faced months or even years of financial stress, worrying and wondering how you're going to pay the bills. Maybe you've been diagnosed with a grave medical condition and constant pain and doctor visits are your new reality. Maybe your spouse was taken from you too soon. It's very easy to feel like God loves us when everything is going smoothly in our lives. We have no reason to doubt that love in times of good health, in times of plenty. On the sunny days, we can smile and say, thank you, Lord. It's much, much harder to do that in a crisis. It's hard to feel God's love when hard times overtake us. But hard times do not mean that God has stopped loving us. Often God sends adversity into our lives in order to grow our faith. We trust him in the good times. We need to learn to trust him in the hard times. A faith that shrivels up at the first sign of difficulty or, or hardship is no faith at all. When we no longer feel God's love, that's the perfect time for us to rest on the promises of Scripture rather than on our own fickle feelings. Last week we read Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is why Paul can quote Psalm 44.22 here at the end of Romans 8 about being killed all the day long and being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then say that in all trials, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That more than conquerors is a, is a pretty weak translation. It's a bit like saying 100 billion is more than six. It's true, technically, but it fails to give the scope of the difference between those two numbers. The term Paul uses in verse 37 more accurately means super conquerors. And he's referencing what he just got done saying in 8 verse 28. We don't just endure trials. God doesn't just bring us through hardship by the skin of our teeth. Instead, God works those hardships in such a way that they are for our good. If you're a parent, you know the awful experience of taking your infant to the doctor to get a shot. 
In the infant's very limited understanding, a stranger hurts him or her while you stand by and do nothing, you who claim to love them and want the best for them. You may even be physically restraining the baby so they can get the shot. Does that mean that you don't love them or that you don't want the best for them? Of course not. You scheduled the appointment for them to get the shot, not because you don't care about them, but because you love them very much. And you know that that shot is going to be for their good, even if it momentarily hurts. They'll never have to experience polio, for instance, because you made it so a doctor would poke them in the thigh with a tiny needle. Or consider Job. We're told he was a righteous man, yet God allowed everything to be taken from him, short of his life. Was God punishing Job? Had God stopped loving Job? Of course not. The initial purpose of Job's suffering was to glorify God by further establishing God's great worth. But it was also to refine Job's righteousness by excising a hidden layer of pride in Job's heart. So God both brought glory to himself and worked for the good of Job. At the end of the book of Job, in verses 10 and 12 of chapter 42, we read, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. God made Job a super conqueror through the sufferings that he endured. Job's trials did not and could not separate him from the love of God. Likewise, the trials that you face in your life neither separate you from God's love nor are signs that you have been separated from his love. Rather, like with Job, God will use the trials in your life to conform you to the image of his son. Finally, this morning, we see that nothing will separate us from the love of God. If you want that last blank to start with an A like the other two, you could say, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. Paul has made clear so far in our text that accusations, either from without or within, will not separate us from God's love. And adversity will not separate us from God's love. Now in verses 38 and 39, he broadens out his argument to include literally everything in all creation by way of several pairs of contrasting items. He begins with neither death nor life. If you're in the prime of your life and you've never felt healthier, God loves you. If you're fighting a hard battle against cancer, God still loves you. If you're on your very deathbed, God's love for you has not changed in the slightest. It seems like every day we hear of someone else we know who has gotten COVID. Too regularly, our friends and our loved ones end up in the hospital because of COVID and and may even face physical consequences for the rest of their lives as a result of catching the virus. We keep hearing about this new strain or that new strain and the various symptoms that come with each new strain, whether they're severe and life-threatening or comparatively mild. Listen, God's love for you doesn't change based on any physical circumstances or health complication you may go through. So we don't need to fear Delta or Omicron or whatever the next strain is. We can rest secure in the love of God, even in the face of death. Paul next says that neither angels nor rulers can separate us from God's love. 
or if you're an NIV reader, the, the contrast in the pair there is made more explicit by translating rulers, demons, instead. Because when the term rulers is used elsewhere in scripture, it means heavenly beings. If you're like me, you read Paul saying that angels cannot separate you from God's love, and you start to wonder what situation or circumstance Paul might be thinking of, especially if rulers means evil heavenly beings. If the rulers are evil, then the angels are good, right? So when on earth, when an angel that's loyal to God try to separate us from the love of God? I don't think Paul is referring to a specific situation here, or is even implying that there may come a time when an angel will try to do this. I think he's just using angels and rulers to sort of blanket statement all of the entire spiritual realm. Sort of like in Galatians 1.8, when Paul tells the Galatian believers, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul is not there saying that the Galatians should expect Paul to come back or an angel to come and present them a heretical gospel. Rather, he's exaggerating in order to make the point that they should not accept a false gospel, a different gospel, from anybody. In the same way, he's using angels and rulers here in Romans 8 to say that no spiritual being of any kind, regardless of their allegiance, is able to separate us from the love of God. From there, Paul moves on to uh, things present nor things to come. We've all had an eventful couple years. Uh, COVID uh, took the world by storm in 2020, along with the dam breaches and the flooding that we experienced here in mid-Michigan. And then there were the murder hornets. Remember them? We've had riots in various parts of the country. Trump supporters tried to take over the U.S. Capitol building last January. Betty White just died. Russia seems to be gearing up to invade Ukraine. In the face of all this, it's become trendy on social media to dread the future. What's next? People are asking in their best Eeyore voices. Listen, for followers of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what's next. Global pandemic couldn't separate us from God's love. Natural disasters can't separate us from God's love. Wars and rumors of wars can't separate us from God's love. We don't need to fear what's happening in the world today or what might happen tomorrow or next month or next year. We can rest secure in the love of God in Christ Jesus no matter what comes next. And that security gives us the opportunity to share with our panicking neighbors the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. Be ready to make the most of those opportunities and so glorify God. Following things present and things to come, Paul does something a little odd, and he breaks his pattern of contrasting pairs to list powers all by itself. Like the word rulers, powers most likely is another reference to heavenly beings. Some scholars have tried to alleviate the seeming randomness of this placement by suggesting that powers is in the wrong place, and that the verse should actually be translated to say, neither angels, nor rulers, nor powers. They fail to realize that that still isn't a pair, that's three things. Uh, but there's no real justification for translating the verse in this way, apart from the strangeness of powers appearing all by itself here. All we can say for sure is that Paul is once more driving home the point that nothing in heaven, no being, 
no authority can separate us from the love of God. Paul rounds out his list of pairs with nor height nor depth. If things present nor things to come is meant to encompass all of time, then height nor depth is meant to encompass all of space. Nothing in our experience of life on earth, nothing in the spiritual realm, nothing in all of time, nothing in the physical realm, absolutely nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. Paul has encompassed literally everything that exists apart from God himself in these two verses. And he assures us that none of it has the slightest power to cut us off from God's love. Brothers and sisters, this passage should be enormously comforting to you. You are loved by the Almighty God with a love that is truly unconditional because it's not based on anything you've done or could ever do. It's not based on your character or your personality. It's not based on your family tree or your ethnic heritage. God loves you because he is gracious and merciful and he chose you as the objects of his love before the creation of the world. That love caused him to send his only son, his only begotten son, to come to this earth as a man, to live sinlessly and to bear God's wrath in your place, to die for your sins and to be raised from the dead for your justification. There is nothing, nothing that can now separate you from that love. Meditate on these great truths this week and rest secure in God's perfect love. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, how grateful we are for your great love. For a love, Father, that is unchanging, that is never fading, never fleeing, God, but that is always with us, that always sees us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we um, go about our week, this coming week, Father, that we would meditate on this passage, on these verses, that we would be assured and encouraged by your great and lasting love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand now and sing our song of response across the lands. <clears throat>